Hi, and welcome to another episode on a quick dose of CE, Emily's podcast for healthcare professionals. I'm Kristen Gusick, and on today's episode, I'll interview Dr. Juan Pablo Frias, Medical Director and Principal Investigator at Velocity Clinical Research in Los Angeles, California, and Dr. Stefano Del Prado, Professor of Endocrinology, Chief of Diabetes and Metabolic Diseases Section in the Department of Clinical and Experimental Medicine at the University of Pisa in Italy. He is also the president of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. Dr. Frias and Professor Del Prado will discuss the practical application of data and FAQs from the Independent Satellite Symposia, Potential Benefits of Incretin Beyond Glycemic Controls in Type 2 Diabetes, which was presented at EASD on September 19, 2022. I'm so excited that you've joined us as we anticipate and overcome some of these challenges. If you wish to participate in this activity for credit, visit www.mlieducation.org forward slash a quick dose. You're listening to a quick dose of CE, MLI's podcast series for healthcare professionals. We will be joined by leading experts to discuss current issues that are facing the practice of medicine, lending objectivity and consensus into highly personal decisions celebrating the uniqueness of our patients. Let's get the conversation started. Hi, Dr. Frias and Dr. Del Prado. We are so grateful to have you both here with us today, especially in light of all this publicity that we've seen in first-in-class dual agonists, the trisepatide. It's been getting so much publicity. It was approved by the FDA right before ADA and then the EU right before EASD, so there's really a lot of buzz around this drug. Dr. Frias, can you help us to understand what's meant by dual agonism and why it seems to be making such a difference in the lives of patients with type 2 diabetes? Yeah, absolutely. So nice to be here. Thank you. And we've had so-called selective GLP-1 receptor agonists from 2005. So these are medications that bind to and agonize the GLP-1 receptor. And these are very powerful medications. But still, we've learned from, from data that there are patients that need additional control, whether it be glycemic or weight loss control. And we've moved now to an era of so-called multi-agonism. So these are single molecules that bind to and agonize multiple receptors. And with respect to terzepatide, it is a GIP and a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So it binds to and activates both incretin hormone receptors. And it is importantly a single peptide. So it's a single peptide. It's actually based on the peptide sequence of GIP, and it's been modified to be able to bind to and activate both receptors. And by doing so, although this isn't an area of very active investigation, the mechanism of action, but by doing so, what we've seen in clinical trials is increased insulin secretion, so first and second phase insulin secretion, reduced glucagon secretion, improved insulin sensitivity, and greater reduction in body weight, so perhaps a greater um, reduction in appetite. And the thought is that this is due to, again, the binding and the activation of both of the incretin receptors, both GIP and GLP-1. That's a great explanation. And so do you think it's the dual agonism that is making such a difference? 
You know, possibly. Again, as I mentioned, this is this is an area of a, a lot of active investigation. Exactly why terzepatide is more efficacious when it's been compared in head-to-head -head trials versus selective GLP-1 receptor agonists. In the phase two study, the main phase two study, we compared terzepatide at various doses to dulaglutide at 1.5 milligrams and found it to be more efficacious. And in phase three, in a study called SURPASS-2, it was a head-to-head -head study looking at, at terzepatide 5, 10, and 15 milligrams versus semaglutide, which is the most potent of the selective GLP-1 receptor agonists, at one milligram once weekly, and found that the three doses were more efficacious than semaglutide for both lowering glycemic um, parameters and also lowering body weight. So we know that it does work more efficaciously. We're not exactly sure why, but it is more than likely the fact that it is binding to and activating both of these receptors, which coexist in many tissues. And actually, there's some tissues that only have GIP, such as um, adipose tissue, and some tissues that only have GLP-1 receptors, such as um, gastric tissue. That's great. And Dr. Del Prado, how do you see trisepatide fitting into the treatment regimen in patients with type 2 diabetes in the EU? You know, um, let, let me remind you that, you know, the uh, uh, ADA and the ASD has been producing since uh, 2006 uh, a consensus for the management of uh, type 2 diabetes. And uh, the last uh, version has been released at the time of the 58th annual meeting of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. This has been a, a recommendation that has been followed worldwide. Uh, and what has been uh, uh, recommended in the latest version is that we need to have a more holistic approach of people with type 2 diabetes, a more comprehensive approach, for a very simple reason. Type 2 diabetes, yes, is heralded by hyperglycemia, but type 2 diabetes is a syndromic in nature. In other words, together with the impairment in glucose control, there is also cardiovascular risk factor, and very often people with type 2 diabetes are overweight, if not, frankly, obese. Now, you can look at this, and the reason why I'm making this, this premise is because you can look at that, you know, and realize to which extent that this hepatite may satisfy some of the needs that have been highlighted by the consensus, which is control of glucose, reduction or control of body weight, control of cardiovascular risk factor, and potentially, because this is the fourth element of the consensus, to identify organ damage in people who already had some problem with their cardiovascular system or their kidney system. And now it is interesting to see how the tisepatide can really satisfy each one of these four elements here. In terms of glycemic control, Dr. Frias just mentioned, you know, as even as compared to existing GLP-1 receptor agonists, tisepatide has been proven to provide a, a clinically meaningful in, in, uh, impact into glycemic control. Just to give an idea, more than close to 90%, if 5% of the people achieve an A1C over the one or max that has been so far explored two years of an A1C lower than 7%. But what is even more astonishing and to my eyes, because it is unprecedented, is up to 30, 35% of the people reach an A1C level lower than 5.7%, which is the upper limit for the normal range of A1C. In other words, for the first time, we had something that has been 
at least initially, suggested and proved that we can normalize glucose control. So with respect to glycemic control, there is great opportunity here. Now, body weight control, tisepatide is very much effective. It can reduce, you know, by more than 10 kilos as compared to placebo, but even when you compare the efficacy of tisepatide versus semaglutide, you can still gain six, seven kilos of body weight reduction, with more than 35% of the people achieving a weight reduction greater than 15%, and 90% of the people treated with zepatide within the, the, the surplus program, which is the clinical development program, achieving at least a 5% reduction in the body weight. So here is another, you know, uh, uh, point that, you know, can be, can be, can be met. And then is cardiovascular risk factors. And cardiovascular risk factors are different in nature. It is high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, but it's not, not only that, it's impaired kidney function. Low GFR and albuminuria are independent cardiovascular risk factors. And nowadays, we have also realized that there is another condition that can really impact the cardiovascular risk factor of people with type 2 diabetes, which is the fat in the liver, NASH, NAFLD, and NASH. Now, there are data, and the data available suggest that tisepatide is associated with a long-term improvement, up to two years, of the lipid profile with reduction in triglyceride, LDL cholesterol, and non-HDL cholesterol, which is an even better uh, marker of a, a, a atherogenic lipoproteins in the circulation. It can reduce by four or five millimeters of mercury systolic and to a lower extent diastolic blood pressure. It can reduce, in, in, at least in a secondary predefined analysis uh, of uh, one of the trials exploring the efficacy and safety of this hepatide, uh, reducing the, the, the progression of uh, impairment in the glomerular filtration and reducing albuminuria, which are, as I, meant, as I said before, two independent cardiovascular risk factors. And there are data also suggesting that may reduce the amount of a fat in the liver, in other words, reducing NAFL and, 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 uh, and the NASH. So altogether, this will bring to the potential for protection of the organ damage. And there are some initial hints, although there are specific studies that are going to look at the cardiovascular protection that we can obtain using tisepatide in people with type 2 diabetes. And actually, that is going to be a very important study because this is going to be the first study where one drug is compared to another drug that has been already proven to provide cardiovascular benefit. In the surplus CV, deroxapatide will be indeed compared to dulaglutide. So this is really an incredible learning curve. We have a great opportunity. We need to dig in into this opportunity, but I think that we need to learn really how to take as much as possible advantage of this opportunity. I agree. You mentioned obesity. How is it treated in the U.S. maybe differently or the same as it is in the EU? I know that one of our um, things I wanted to talk with you about was about the label, but if we could just dig into the obesity component for a minute. Dr. Frias, could you compare how obesity is treated in the United States compared to maybe the EU or elaborate a little bit on how obesity and diabetes is treated in the U.S.? Yeah, what I what I could tell you about obesity is, as Dr. Del Prado mentioned, most of our patients with type two diabetes are overweight or obese, and over the past several years, we've certainly shifted um, somewhat, and this is based on availability of anti-diabetic agents that actually cause weight loss, into more of a, a 
treatment philosophy, if you will, that we need to address the root cause of many um, of the issues that, that lead to hyperglycemia and other complications of obesity. So treating obesity and overweight is critical in the management of patients with type 2 diabetes. So that's the first thing I would say. And now we have agents that are available that not only improve glucose, but also improve body weight. So I think we're seeing more and more of these incretin-based therapies um, being used to treat, you know, whether it be obesity and overweight without diabetes, perhaps with pre-diabetes, or, and also in, in patients with type 2 diabetes. And, and as you know, um, we have selective GLP-1 receptor agonists, both liraglutide at 3 milligrams once daily, semaglutide at 2.4 milligrams once weekly for the treatment specifically of obesity with or without type 2 diabetes. And then terzepatide is currently um, in a clinical development program called the Surmount program. One study which has been completed, Surmount 1, which was published in June of this year and presented at the ADA. And then other studies that are currently ongoing, including Surmount 2, which is a study looking at patients um, who are overweight or obese with type 2 diabetes. So I think in general, I, I don't know the, the differences in, in the U.S. and Europe. I imagine there are more similarities than differences with respect to the management. I would say, though, in the U.S., if you look at the data of all of the patients who are eligible for pharmacotherapy for overweight or obesity, only 2% actually receive pharmacotherapy. And that's because up until now, we really have not had the tools um, to, to manage patients safely with pharmacotherapy and get the types of results we're getting with GLP-1 receptor agonists and now what we're seeing in clinical trials with the dual GIP and GLP-1 receptor agonist terzepatide. Dr. Del Prado? Yeah, I want to agree with uh, my, my friends, uh, Dr. Frias. You know, the main difference I can see in terms of obesity between the uh, U.S. and uh, Europe is the prevalence of diabetes, I believe. I mean, we are a little bit lagging our back, but, but uh, you know, uh, but, but it's, it's growing up in, in Europe, but I think that you are facing an even uh, fatter, if I can use the, the word, problem in the uh, in, in, in U.S. But I think that we are on the same ground in terms of the tools we may have in our hands to try to tackle the problem. Uh, and, and the problem is really that we haven't had in the past any significant pharmaceutical intervention that really was able to provide a, a, a long-standing and sustained effect in terms of weight reduction. So uh, we had, as, as has been mentioned, in all GLP, specific GLP-1 receptor agonists, liraglutide, semaglutide, high dose. By the way, in our system, in all Europe, is more universal in terms of the coverage and reimbursement. But, for instance, in my country, uh, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are fully reimbursed for people with type 2 diabetes, but not for people with obesity. So the people with obesity <coughs> can take advantage of this treatment, but they have to pay out of pocket. So uh, whether, you know, having a more effective treatment, as Lysizepatitis seems to, prom to, 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 to promise, and the result of the Sormon trials has been very, very exciting. It's a problem that we're going to discuss and see in the near future. So I do see a difference in the prevalence of obesity. I do see that we face the same problem in treatment of diabetes. 
And I think that on both sides of the pond, we are looking at tizipatide as a new opportunity. Okay, and the last couple of minutes that we have, Dr. Frias, do you want to kind of take us on a journey through the trizepatide PI, what, the label? What really stands out to you? Yes, yeah, so in the U.S., trizepatide was, was um, approved by the FDA in May of this year, of 2022, and shortly thereafter became commercially available. So it's indicated for adults with type 2 diabetes for the management as an adjunct to diet and exercise, I should say, for the management of, of hyperglycemia. And importantly, it, it comes in six doses in the U.S., and each of these doses are in a single-use, once-weekly um, pen with a, with a hidden needle. And, um, and the doses are 2.5, 5 milligrams, 7.5, 10, 12.5, and 15 milligrams. And I think what, what, what stands out, I guess, is, is a safety and tolerability profile. I think this is very important, which is quite comparable to that with the GLP-1 receptor agonist with GI side effects being most common, but generally manageable in the clinic, but it's something we need to discuss with our patients. Also for patients who are initiating terzepatide, who are on either insulin secretagogues and or insulin, um, it can augment the risk of hypoglycemia with these agents. So we should consider proactively reducing the doses of these agents. Certainly in my patients, and the recommendation is in patients on metformin or an SGLT2 inhibitor, those should generally be continued. And, um, and stopping um, DPP-4 inhibitors when terzepatide is initiated. And again, the initiation dose is 2.5 milligrams. After four weeks, once weekly injections of 2.5, um, we increase to the 5 milligram dose. And then, based on the patient's response and their individualized targets for glycemia and body weight, it could be increased in 2.5 milligram increments, but no more quickly than every four weeks. So I have patients who are, might be on 7.5, and each of those other doses, apart from the 2.5 in the U.S. anyway, is considered a maintenance dose. So 5, 7.5, 10, 12.5, and the maximal dose is 15 milligrams. And in my personal opinion, I think it's nice to have this wide spectrum of doses because not everyone needs to lose that much weight. Not everyone needs the higher doses to achieve their glycemic targets. So we need to just be monitoring our patients as we do at, with any new therapy, making sure that we have their targets set. And if they reach the target, we stop dose escalating on those patients. So those are sort of the, the keys with respect to the, to the U.S. label. That's fantastic. And thanks for all those practical tips. Dr. Del Prado, what do you think about the EU label? How is it similar? How is it different? And maybe some practical tips that you see. Yeah, the, 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 um, the, the label from EMA is, is a pretty broad one because, you know, it's a typical indication suggesting the use of a monotherapy for tisepatide if people are not tolerant to metformin. But uh, uh, after that, you know, tisepatide can be added on top of every, every existing uh, uh, treatment. Of course, I much agree with uh, with Dr. Frias that if you have a DPP-4, it doesn't make much sense, you know, to use the component of a GLP-1 stimulation and the concomitant use of DPP-4. There's never been a study showing that the GLP-1 stimulation together with an inhibition of DPP-4 can provide any further uh, uh, advantage. So, 
I, I, I totally agree with that. And also, I, I, I've been, you know, I had the, the opportunity to, to coordinate uh, one of the, uh, the study with the hepatitis surpass 4 that was very instructive in terms of the management of hypoglycemia because for the first time we saw an increase as compared to the previous trial in the rate of hypoglycemia but that was not because of the hepatitis was because the trial included people who already were on drugs that per se can increase the risk of hypoglycemia, sulfonylureas in particular. And when you do really dissect out those people with sulfonylurea versus those without sulfonylureas, hypoglycemia happens in those people who are already on, on sulfonylurea, which is, I think, a very uh, a direct practical hint. You know, if you have someone on sulfonylurea and you do introduce a very powerful uh, lowering glucose lowering agent, uh, you have to be a, a little bit uh, cautious in terms of the risk of hypoglycemia. Maybe you want to cut down the dose, if not withdraw at all the sulfonylureas. So, and I have to say that my suggestion is more based on what I've been read, because in Europe, you know, this hepatitis is not uh, yet available. And uh, Dr. Frias really has a much more experience uh, uh, with the use of the drug. Uh, but we're looking uh, with very close eye uh, at what our uh, fel- uh, friends in, in, in the States are, are, are elaborating and are experiencing to, to get ready to start treating patients properly with the hepatitis in Europe as well. Well, thank you so much. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate all the insights that you shared with us and uh, look forward to uh, working with you both in the future. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Quick Dose of CE, MLI's podcast series for healthcare professionals. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. You can also subscribe at www.mlieducation.org forward slash a quick dose to be notified when new episodes are released and even provide your own suggestions for future episodes. We'll see you next time.